Welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. I met him 15 years ago. I, I was told there was nothing left. No reason, no uh, conscience, no understanding, and even the most rudimentary sense of life or death, of, of good or evil, right or wrong. I met this six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face and the blackest eyes. The following review will contain spoilers and may contain strong language. I spent eight years trying to reach him and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. Today, as part of our throwback series, we'll be discussing Halloween, starring Jamie Lee Curtis. Tom, Halloween night, it's when people play tricks on each other. It's all make-believe. I think Richie was just trying to scare you. PJ Souls. Well, are we still on for tonight? I wouldn't want to get you in deep trouble, Linda. Oh, come on, Annie. Bob and I have been planning on it all week. Nancy Keys. I'm babysitting the Doyles. It's only three houses down. We can keep each other company. Oh, terrific. I've got three choices. Watch the kids sleep, listen to Linda screw around, or talk to you. And Donald Pleasance. You can get back in there and get back on that telephone. Tell them exactly who walked out of here last night. And tell them exactly where he's going. Probably going. Directed by John Carpenter. You know, it's Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare, huh? Hello and welcome to the Rewire Movie Podcast. Oh, terrific. I've got three choices. Watch the kids sleep, listen to Linda screw around, or talk to you. It's Gally in Glasgow. And sitting in a room, staring at a wall, not seeing the wall, looking past the wall, looking at this night. It's Devlin in London. I'll be right back. Don't get dressed. It's Patrick in Cardiff. I hate a guy with a car and no sense of humour. It's Matt in South Korea. Welcome back, gang. The team reformed. My God, me and Matt were struggling. I won't lie. <laughs> uh, we've had nothing but complaints. Matt, we did well on our own, but I think we needed our support of our brothers. Agreed. So welcome back, Patrick and Devlin. Patrick, um, you've been working with Tom Hardy uh, for all this time. Is he still a joy? No comment. <laughs> Roger, good, good. And... and, and... <laughs> Uh, Devlin, did you find your Dolmio day in Italy? <laughs> You're daft racist. <laughs> um, I had a cracking time in Italy, although I have very much enjoyed you guys' uh, uh, hashtag content. Well, I've been away. You've been holding the fort admirably, uh, especially your uh, your last episode on uh, Roger Moore Bond, which is not something that I'm very familiar with. But now, uh, uh, from your prompting, Matt, I am going to delve uh, uh, into, <laughs> into the, the treasures. treasures. <laughs> <laughs> it, did, it did make me want to watch them because um, it's been years for me since I've seen a Roger Moore Bond, to be honest. And I, I really, I, you got me really wanting to watch um, uh, Octopussy. <laughs> oh, good! Just the title alone, <laughs> Octopussy. <laughs> yeah, a few, a few things like, that I've missed is a doing Alan Partridge quotes on the Bond one. Um, I missed episode 69, which I'm gutted about because 69, giggity. Uh, <laughs> you mentioned Kill the Bitch in, um, 
Deep Blue Sea, Matt, and you're trying to remember what other episode it was from. That was uh, Fertile Attraction. Of course. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. It's Glenn Close. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forgive Gally Fusing Baby Shark as the outro music is Deep Blue Sea. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome back, everyone. uh, And welcome back, listeners. So we are in our kind of spooky territory, like many, many others around us. We are now entering our Halloween kind of series. And we we thought long and hard. And then we thought, "Mm, actually, you know what? We've only ever done Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, which though for many is the best. Actually, we should probably go back to where it all began. So that's what we're going to do, listeners. We're going to do, we're going to concentrate on Halloween, 1978, John Combe, it's a classic. And we're going to touch on Halloween 2 in this episode. And then the next episode, we're going to look at the forlorn sequels and concentrate specifically on Halloween H2O, or however you want to say it, H20, Halloween Water, whatever you want to say. Is it in The Simpsons that they have like the theme park ride that's H2O? <laughs> it is, it is. And there is our, there's our superfluous Simpsons reference ticked already on this episode. I think we'll, uh, we'll start around the room then, team. Devlin, I know you're a massive fan, so I'm sure you've got like some crazy story about how you watched this when you were two and then decided to start wielding knives. What is your experience with Halloween. Well, I'm going to subvert your expectations right now and say that uh, I didn't see the first Halloween film until a lot later in life than you might expect. Um, probably, I don't, I, I genuinely don't remember the first, uh, how old I was when I first saw it, but I would say it was somewhere around 17, 18, maybe even later. Um, as you are well aware, from our earlier episode, which everyone should go back and listen to, where you both made fun of me for how much I love it, even though you're wrong. <laughs> and Tom Atkins is the best and you two suck. Uh, Halloween three season of the witch was my favorite when I was a kid. And, um, I, uh, so I, I, I knew that film. I had seen scream quite young, which obviously has a, a great deal of reference to Halloween. OG 1978. Uh, and at some point I saw Halloween two, probably around the age of 12 or 13. But because of all that, I kind of figured I'd already seen Halloween and that I could sort of file it into this, um, slightly archaic sort of unnecessary, um, film to, to, to actually go back and watch. Um, so I had quite a jolt when I actually watched it properly. Um, I also weirdly was convinced it was in black and white, I guess, just because when you see, when you see it in, Hall- in, in Halloween three season of the witch on the TV, it's in black and white. And I might be wrong, but either the color is so fucked in scream or that in scream, they are watching it on a black and white TV. So for, for whatever reason, I was convinced it was a monochrome film that was all small and boxy and televisual and that I never really needed to see it. And it wasn't until I actually watched it that it was this completely different experience than I was expecting. So, um, yeah, so uh, an odd origin with, with actual Halloween, uh, moving to, to Patrick, cause, uh, talking this morning, you said that this was, I believe your first experience. It's my first watch. Yeah. yeah. I, uh, so I watched, I I'm wondering if Halloween three was the first episode I did with you guys as well. It was indeed. Yeah, bloody hell. Um, many moons ago, and this is the first time I've ever seen Halloween. And I thought, I, I kind of figured I'd already seen it. 
And I'm wondering if I figured I'd already seen it because it's so famous and you see clips of it all the time on different shows and examples and top 10 lists and all of this bollocks. Um, I have a, I, I did have an everlasting image though of Michael at the, at the bush, at the hedge when they're on the pavement for some reason. And I knew there was something to do with the coat hanger. And I had that in my mind and I was waiting for that. And I, I could see Jamie Lee Curtis in a cupboard with a coat hanger and I, I knew that. And I, otherwise I hadn't, I hadn't seen this film, especially when it started and at the beginning with who I thought was, uh, Strickland, but it's Donald Pleasant to start with. I, I realized, <laughs> no, I've, I've no idea. And the flashback, the POV stuff, um, uh, 1963. I was like, whoa, I haven't seen this at all. Okay. Right. Let's go. So thank you, uh, Devlin. I know I was very aware that you, you're a big fan of this. So I thought oh, I better pay attention. Here we go. Um, Gally, how about you, please? Well, I'm going to confess something. Um, oh, I yeah, always, always a deep confessional. Gally's deep bath. <laughs> no, um, <laughs> deepest bluest confession. Yeah, <laughs> deepest bluest indeed. No, I'm um, honestly, when it comes down to horror, I I have certain categories that I. I return to that I really enjoy. And I think I'm very much more of a kind of ghost story type kind of individual, especially when it comes down to scares. I think I get far more affected by kind of ghosts and supernatural. So slashes, which again, we can discuss whether that this actually even qualifies is something that I kind of watch, you know, just sort of passively, super passively. I can enjoy them. I'm certainly not as big a fan as, as Devlin, but I do enjoy good, good old schlock. And, um, so Halloween is a bit of a strange one because I think just like Devlin said, I saw clippings in Scream, which obviously Scream was my kind of awakening to this kind of genre because I wasn't really a horror guy until I saw Scream and I thought, well, I better go back and watch this film that, uh, Jamie Kennedy keeps talking about. And, uh, and that's what I did. And then as I subsequently became like a John Carpenter fan, then everything kind of came full circle. So my history with this one is I have no idea when I first saw it. I'm going to say it was probably straight after Scream when I, you know, picked up all the films that that, that movie referenced. Uh, and then it's always just kind of lived in the, yeah, it's a classic horror movie. Um, and I've, I've kept it there, but actually to reappraise it properly and watch it with kind of critical eyes with you guys, knowing that you're going to be challenging everything that I say has been really quite a lot of fun this week. What about you, Matt? History with the film? Uh, mine go back to late night television, uh, probably watching it on that old TV that my grandparents gave me that I've talked about before with the controller in my hand because I was a bit worried about what was going to come on and maybe try and switch it over if it was too scary. Um it, uh, I remember it because it had nudity and it was kind of a gateway drug into these types of films. In terms of Scream, I think I saw it before. <laughs> uh, it must have been before 96. <laughs> so that would make me under 14 when I saw it. So uh, uh, my friend Sam Hollis cites it as his favorite film of all time. And I know Kevin, uh, Kevin Williamson, uh, the writer of Dawson's Creek and the Scream movies, also puts it at number one. Uh, the first short film I ever made when I was 17 was a stalker, like a stalk and slash teen horror, uh, called Night Class. Uh, it, it was actually called Detention first, but there's already a film called Detention. I'm sure there's a film called Night Class as well, but we changed it to that. Uh, and that owed everything to Halloween. It had a killer with a knife 
apart from it was dreadful. It had a, a killer <laughs> with a knife, a uh, very slow, methodical stalking as opposed to screams running all at the, the West Craven reinvention of it with all the running it. This was, this was a very slow plodding. There's a scene where it takes a boy about five minutes to walk through a graveyard and nothing else happens. It's extremely boring. I love the do-it-yourself style authorship of John Carpenter. It was always a big inspiration uh, and how much he put his, put ownership on his work with a modest budget and uh, also that they made such a big hit as well with next to no money. Um, apparently it cost about 320,000 and made 70 million was the figure I found. Incredible. Which makes it the most successful independent film ever until the Blair Witch Project comes along with another minute budget. Um, I love the way he branded the movies as his name above the title. And after Spielberg and Tarantino, you know, John Carpenter was a name that was extremely high up in terms of directors for me. Yeah, I watch it every year about this time. So it was a pleasure to revisit it for the for the podcast and do a bit of extra research into it. I can't believe I've not seen it before now. I, I know the film's really famous and mm. proper horror film that's uh, right up there, but I've no excuse. I think it falls under the category that we had of a lot of films that we cover whereby people are more aware of the series or the continuations or the sequels, and it's largely just because for, for whatever reason, television doesn't show the originals anywhere near as much as it shows the knockoffs. Mm. Well, I think we, we, we might know why that is. Um, I should imagine it's because they're cheaper. It's but we, we, cheaper, you know, yes. and also there's, there's normally studio wranglings between, you know, licensing issues. Anyway, we will get into that possibly in part two of this. Actually, I think, we, I think we covered that in a Halloween three. I think that's why I said that. we did actually. That, yeah. That's why I so got you could also yeah, listen yeah. back to that. You could also yeah. listen back to that. Well, anyway, enough, uh, enough preamble. <laughs> Patrick, we've missed you. We've tried our best, but it's time for story time with Patrick. Can you please give our listeners a plot summary of Halloween? On a cold Halloween night in 1963, six-year-old Michael Myers brutally murders his 17-year-old sister, Judith. He was sentenced and locked away for 15 years, but on October 30th, 1978, while being transferred to a court date, a 21-year-old Michael Myers steals a car and escapes Smith's Grove. He returns to his quiet hometown of Haddonfield, Illinois, where he looks for his next victims. Nice. If, listeners, he is closing the book uh, very beautifully on camera here. I figure a very brief synopsis for what is essentially quite a, um, a straightforward plot for horror, right? And... Because uh, I don't know much about it and I'm new to the film, there's a there's a very simple plot synopsis because I'm expecting Devlin to give me a, a, a proper deep bath here. It's super lean, right, Devlin? I mean, that's one of the things that, coming back to it, I, I was so drawn to the fact that it was like we're straight into this story and there's no fat on, on this carcass mm. whatsoever. But as far as um, this one getting made and how it kind of got started. Have you got any kind of context for us before we start digging into into the actual meat of the story? Um, a little, although um, I would say probably um, me and, and, and Matt would probably have similar information because, Matt, you clued us into uh, a great podcast series. We've got Halloween Unmasked. Yes. Wasn't it good? Uh, which which is fantastic. And uh, uh, I think it's Amy Nicholson friend. is the film critic yes. that uh, hosts it, and it had... Uh, 
all of the guests were fantastic. Had Jamie Lee and, uh, there was no Deborah Hill, unfortunately, because she died, I think. Uh, she passed away in 2005, I believe. 2005. Yeah. And, but there's, uh, John Carpenter on there and uh, just all kinds of great interviews. Tommy Wallace, Nick Castle, um, uh, and I would say that would be not that we want to drive listeners away, but you know, we want to share the love. So, <laughs> a companion uh, piece, perhaps. I missed please, the title. What was please it do go check out Halloween it's- Unmasked. It's a podcast by The Ringer, which is available everywhere and, um, would be, uh, uh, there's an entire episode, which is just about the, the, the origins of the film. But to give you a very brief overview, it's, uh, uh, the producer Owen Yablins, uh, who met John Carpenter when they were making, um, uh, Assault on Precinct 13. I believe Assault on Precinct 13 had already been made, but was gaining very little traction. And Owen Yablins was the producer that kind of took John Carpenter under his wing. He he said that the guy was clearly talented, but what he really appreciated was how frugal he was, uh, how, how sensible, like you were saying, Matt, about like the, you know, this is a real kind of pick the camera up and go guy. Um, he's, he's not going to waste time on multiple takes. He, he knows exactly what he wants to get. He can see the film before he makes it, which is, which is a real boon if you only have budgets measured in the tens or hundreds of thousands as opposed to the millions. Um, and Owen Yablins is the guy who's credited with coming up with the original idea for the film. He wanted, um, a horror film because he felt that they can sell. Uh, there's a lot of, of, of influence that Yablins had that, I think helps to shape what the film became, which is, uh, he said he didn't want gore and blood. He said it turns audiences off. It limits your, uh, outlet op- uh, opportunities. Um, so he wanted it to be suspenseful, but not gory. Mm. He said he wanted a staircase because staircases are scary. <laughs> and he got one as well, didn't he? He said he wanted it to be about babysitting. Now this is the one point in the podcast where Amy Nicholson has a, a slight, uh, a double take reaction because he's talking, uh, uh, quite eloquently about how like babysitters, when you think about it, is a terrifying idea. It's like I'm bringing a young girl into a home, leaving them unsupervised with your children, which is the most vulnerable thing you can possibly imagine. There's also a quote there that is the most hilarious thing I heard in the research, which was, uh, everyone's uh, in America, everyone's either been a babysitter or a baby. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> you're going to relate to this one. You can't, you can't argue with it. Um, so he's, he's making a point and, and you know, you, you got to nod along with it. And then he says, also, you know, they put the babysitters in the pornos. <laughs> Perhaps his, uh, his, he, he lost, he lost his audience just a little bit there. It was his idea to call it Halloween too, I think, because they had never been done before. They, they looked yeah. it up and the name had never been taken. So babysitters being murdered, set in one night, it's called Halloween, off you go. Uh, isn't that the dr- Well, here, Matt, this is where I got a, a real kind of, I had to do a double take. So obviously me and Patrick, we we enjoyed our Season of the Witch uh, review with Devlin, but we didn't quite meet him with, with its kind of, you know, a sheer amount of praise that Devon has for it and love for it. Um, I thought that the Celtic mythology that was woven within Caesar the Witch was just utter nonsense to have a story. <laughs> I had no idea, no idea that Deborah Hill and John Carpenter's uh, idea, actually the concept of Michael Myers, this evil came from Celtic mythology. So that the idea is that the souls of the dead wreak havoc on the living on one day and they just, you know, 
Halloween it is. And there I don't you think go. it is though, is it? I said in Halloween no, 3 it's, with um, you. I was like, Devin, I expect him, Michael Myers, the guy in the mask to come out, you know, because Halloween, uh, Matt's favorite word, franchise films, you expect recurring characters. But I think Halloween 3 was completely its own thing and made up its own jargon for its own film. Doesn't relate to this though, right? but, but, but when we saw the hen, um, it obviously seemed farcical <laughs> to try and get that in. But now I know that there was some tangential link. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid I'm, yeah, I'm gonna have to, uh, uh, sever your tangential link. The, um, the, oh, the, you're the, pissing the... on my chips. Don't do that. <laughs> pissing on your sandwich, mate. What eventually became the kind of, you know, the cult of Thorn, the, the, oh, he's like an ancient evil, the, you know, Samhain, Sam Hain bullshit uh actually came from a novelization which was completely separate to uh to the film it was a novel what about halloween 2 when he writes it on the board in the classroom so that was when they they retroactively threaded it back through but there is uh john carpenter is asked outright is uh the amy nicholson again she, she's saying that in the book the the and now the long out of print novelization begins with the story of a um a celtic princeling or something <laughs> that john carpenter <laughs> hasn't read <laughs> and then she asks him she says uh so is 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 that the real origin story of michael myers he says nah it's bullshit <laughs> <laughs> there was one thing i found about the salem witch trials um they described their victims as shapes and that's where the shape comes from but as far as the thorn stuff i'm i'm not too clued up i have to defer to you devlin the thorn stuff yeah, we'll, we'll get there in the, we'll get there in the next episode, my man. I'm, I'm going to be, I'm a proper tourist on this episode, aren't I? I know jack shit. You, you're talking, uh, uh, Halloween five and six before you really get dug so deep into that. There's, there's a hint in Halloween. How many did you they, say there were in total? Uh, so there are six, uh, uh, kind of the timeline very briefly. Halloween 1978, Halloween two, 1981. Then they decided, right, fuck Michael Myers, he's dead. I don't want to do this anymore. Uh, Halloween 3 in 1983. Uh, Halloween 3 doesn't do very well. So they say, nope, Michael's back. So you have uh, uh, three further films with Michael, uh, increasingly desperate and terrible, ending with Paul Rudd in 1995. Paul Rudd? Paul Rudd's film debut is in uh, 1995 in, the, in, in Halloween 6. Uh, then we go into H2O. H2O, uh, uh, rekindles a bit of, uh, uh, attention to the series. Uh, they piss that away in Halloween Resurrection by having Buster Rhymes kick a man out of a window. We take a little break, then Rob Zombie gets aboard and makes two very, very divisive films, which I still haven't seen. So next episode, I think we're relying on Matt. I am the, uh, yeah, I'm going to stick up for Rob Zombie next time. Uh, and then, yes. and then, uh, uh, ending in 2018 with David Gordon Green's Halloween and then this year's Halloween Kills and then Halloween. Well, I tell you what, Devlin, I have learned a valuable lesson here, which is not all the information that is captured on the internet is correct. So <laughs> thank you for telling me the Celtic mythology was indeed a duff steer. You're right in that in, in Halloween 2, there is a, a, a moment where they, uh, where they incorporate it. I, I chalk that up to, uh, Carpenter and Hill's, um, palpable disinterest in making halloween 2 which is that they figured if you know if this book the novelization mentioned this then fuck it i'll use that so that's why you mm. have the bizarre scene in the in the schoolyard where there's a, a fucking giant knife smashed through a, a a drawing of a family in the word sam Hain, not how it's pronounced written on the wall in blood well one of the things um that i think in in 
in helping or assisting in this kind of renaissance in horror that happened in the the late 60s uh, up till when Halloween came out in 1978 is the Hayes Code. You guys familiar with this one? So this is the motion picture production code which set the the industry guidelines for self-censorship of content. Where the girl has to have one foot on the floor (laughs) at all times if you're in bed. There are some crazy ones in there and it applied from... I think it was from like the the early 30s and it, until it disbanded in the, in the late 60s and it was it applied mainly to the major US uh, studios and the reason they abandoned it was because of the threat of home television but what it meant was that instead of prohibiting what you what content that you could show couldn't have anything that's explicit it then prohibited minors from seeing adult material which is where the rating system came in and then once that happened it opened the floodgates to rosemary's baby the night of living dead the omen texas chainsaw massacre and then halloween so i do think that the haze code you know being disbarred you know that's one of the reasons why um the producer said you know horror sells it reminds me a little bit of um you know, the story of the evil dad with Sam Raimi. They just go around and go, what, what is the most popular genre that we can do cheap that will get as a good return? The horror genre. It was designed as an exploitation film, wasn't it? A, a drive-in horror, you know, and then it just became, it transcended it all, just became something just enormous. Because the, uh, the indies had already been kind of pushing in on the, on the studio territory. I think, I mean, this is a, an independent production. It happens to be released through Universal, but this is, uh, you know, as as you see at the start, Mustafa Akkad presents. Um, Mustafa Akkad, maybe we'll. He's get a character, isn't he? Episode two. He is. That is a a, a fascinating dude. A, a, a terrible, tragic end to his story, and but a really bizarre. Uh, uh, he got involved in the film because he was a, a director of widescreen, vista laden epics about Islam. He's a Syrian filmmaker, very 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 wealthy man as well. Uh, who apparently had a direct line to funding from uh, Colonel Gaddafi. There is, it's very possible that Colonel Gaddafi paid for this film. Yeah. Indirectly through the, the previous film, which earned a lot of money. And then this investment mm. came from that. So kind of indirectly, but yeah, this could be a um, executive produced by Colonel Gaddafi. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible. Well, um, guys, should we, should we do it? Should we, should we talk about the film itself? Um, and uh, one of the things I wanted to get straight into, and forgive me for getting straight into the controversial s- side of life, but the effective cold opening is incredible to me. I know we're, we're going to talk music. We're going to talk about. I mean, I love the uh, I love the credit sequence with the with just the the Halloween lantern. Goes on for five minutes and it's lovely. Um, but I'm just going to talk about that uh, that opening kill um, because one of the things that I've written down in my notes was the relationship between sex and sexual violence in movies. And, uh, you know, I trust me, not Pauline Kale over here. Um, but just the idea that, that, that opening, the way that come to shoots that opening scene is laden with kind of problematic <sighs> inference, I guess. Um, so what I, what I had was that, you know, the, the idea of shooting it in POV, we then inhabit the space of the killer. And I'm interested to know what you think on this, Patrick, because you've obviously just seen it for the first time. But ordinarily, I would say that that is probably something that you want to try and avoid doing unless you're trying to make a point about it. And I wonder if Carpenter is culpable for adding to like another sequence in a horror movie where the sexual violence is being depicted 
and it's from a male perspective, kind of objectifying women, but also reducing them to mere objects of desire. I had some thoughts on this, but I saw an interview that Mark Commode did with John Carpenter just this afternoon on YouTube. And John Carpenter says a couple of things to to kind of defend himself when when posed with that exact question, Gally. Uh, he says that in order to put you put you in the shoes of a character, you need to see a shot of the character. You need three shots, a shot of the character, a shot of what the character sees, and then the character reacting to that POV. And when it's all just entirely a POV, you're not technically put in the mindset of, of that character. And the other thing he does is he doesn't only use Michael's POV throughout, like something like Peeping Tom, you know, I, as far as I can remember, Peeping Tom is all just through the, the camera lens of the killer um, when you see it. So here you actually see POVs from other characters in the movie too. So you're never quite sure who's looking at who and where Michael is. So they're the, the two things that, that Carpenter said to to defend that argument i i also feel like um it's almost like a um an invasion like we didn't we didn't want to because it's the opening of the film we didn't want to step into the shoes of this character i don't i don't think it comes up with a sense of wish fulfillment because it's the first thing that happens and we're mm-hmm. i think we've spoken before about how um the introduction to a film can be so important because you go into something from scratch with absolutely no preconceived notions of where you are, what the world is, what the universe is, what the rules are. And the first thing that happens to us is that we're stalking around outside the window. And the first time you hear those, those really high pitched notes and then it sits and it's just like, you get that horrible, like high pitched tone that just drags out for so long. It's, um, it's really efficient in setting up what the rest of the film is going to be like as well, right? It's like, it's going to make you feel uncomfortable and it's going to make you feel uncomfortable for long stretches, more than you feel like you should be comfortable with. So, um, I, I didn't get much of a kind, it's not like, like, uh, like a maniac or something like that. There's a sense of like angry wish fulfillment. I always got the impression that, um, what they wanted to do was create an, an empathy in a way with the victim more than anything else like shocking us as an audience by putting us in the shoes of a killer and then for the rest of the film um it's like we've had to live like we have to live with that weird guilt for the next 90 minutes the way that we might watch Laurie means that there's you know you've already seen just how bad this is going to become but then they withhold it for another full hour pretty much before the, the the violence starts and it's also propping up your your villain isn't it you know that's what you see that's what you see that character do as a child gotta imagine what what it'd be like when as an adult you know i'll i'll answer my own question because i'm obviously just it was slightly rhetorical um in that i'm not saying that that's my position at all it was very much just a lot of people when it comes down to horror films and it comes down to sexual violence and especially because it's ordinarily sexual violence against women. These are kind of things you've got to address. You can't just say, well, it's not a thing. But mm. I do think what the the thing that I'm posing in that question is probably more directed towards something like Friday the 13th and their subsequent sequels, which I think use the POV way more egregiously. And it feels very much just as a kind of cathartic, vicarious way for sort of teenage weirdos to kind of experience 
some weird, horrible dark fantasy where they can kind of get their kicks off. There's one of the reasons why I think that is because Carpenter withholds. So when we get to the moment of stabbing, we, the camera cuts away. And it's one of the things that I love about the movie to just get straight into sandwiches is that the, in this one, uh, it's left to your own kind of imagination most of the time. Isn't it strange that he looks at the knife? He looks up at the knife yeah, yeah, yeah. as he's doing the killing. Obviously, there are clear, you know, clear echoes of, of Psycho. Um, but one of the things as well that this cold opening does is that it brings the horror into the suburbs, which felt like the logical step from the Bates Hotel and four years earlier, that weird off-country road in Texas. We're now in the safe, quiet space of the suburbs. And I thought it was super effective. I mean, what about you, Patrick? Because this is incredible. Certainly to start a film, A, with a striking image of the zooming into a pumpkin, which was really nice. And, you know, I was like, okay, he's, he's making a statement here. And then into this uncomfortable POV, the low angle. And then for me, the, the whole design of that galley was based around the reveal and the shock that it was a child. It was Michael. And that was one of the more effective things to me. You know what? I hadn't really put two and two together in there with the sexual violence. Um, while she was nude at her nightstand, um, I think there was a bigger commentary there about kind of safety at home and the non-threatening nature that Michael imposes on her. So she was not expecting it. How about this idea that the brother was the killer? Uh, and you, you can talk about home invasions and things and how terrifying that is. And that was happening with serial killers at the time. But this idea that um, it, it could be someone from within your your circle or someone is like your, your little brother that could actually do it. And, and uh, what the high percentage of people murders are that the killer knows the victim, um, which is what I got from here. Cause the non-threatening response she had to him, you know, I think in a usual horror film, Michael would have killed maybe the, the lover who, who left, you know, out of jealousy or mm. something. Well, that's interesting. Cause when, once we get to um, the Rob zombie, uh, version more lots more people die within within the circle of of what's going on that night and also previous to that night so yeah have, have a look at the, the 2007 rob zombie one and uh it's quite an interesting comparison i was i was trying to figure out the motive here mm. um especially because it was it's so cold and it's so um I don't know, quite shocking. Yes, you see, it's very, um, <laughs> very odd camera angles as well that really threw me. Cause I was like, there's a camera angle when he, um, uh, the hand reaches into the, the, the drawer and pulls out the knife. It's like, it almost <laughs> looks like a model kitchen, like a miniature. Yeah. And it was really mm-hmm, weird, mm-hmm. uh, perspective. That's actually Deborah Hill's hand, um, the, the producer and then writer. And I did, Hill. I thought it was a woman's hand as well. Yeah. But, um, when he go, when he does look at the knife in that shot, um, on a technical level, that actually allows, uh, the sister to put blood on her to, uh, as, as a thing, which was, which was very neat, but also added a very interesting looking at the weapon and considering it. Then when you realize it's a child, he's looking at the, the, the implement that allowed him to do whatever he wanted to do in that instant. And the cold expressionless face at the end holding the knife. That's a really jarring image. Um, because A, it's the reveal, didn't expect it to be a kid. And like, wow, okay, this is, you know, what I, but what I like about the film, we don't fully explore the, the psyche of Michael and we don't fully understand him. Uh, Gally, you said about like, you like films that maybe a bit more, uh, ghost and supernatural, but 
there's doors opening throughout this film that have no explanation. It's quite a supernatural thing. That's, that's exactly it. So, um, it reminded me of, I think it was, I think it was Gene Siskel who, who, uh, described aliens as a boo movie. I think it was, was it, was it Gene for, for aliens? I think it was originally Pauline Kale and they, they cited it. And they cited it, right, Roger. Yeah, that it's a big, you know, it's a boo movie. Um, you know, boo. And, and actually I found this one to be, to be like that as well. But the way that it was executed is the key. So John Carpenter, I think apart from Dark Star has always shot with in an anamorphic aspect ratio. And this film, his, his, the way that he deploys that is, in my eyes, just phenomenal. So when we, when we first meet Jamie Lee Curtis, Laurie Strode, she's in this huge wide, um, coming out of her house. And then throughout the first 45 minutes, you see, so just for listeners, cause obviously it's a podcast, not great for visual, but like when you shoot anamorphic aspect ratio, you're giving it, you're shooting rectangles. So you've got way more width. So you have to fill that with something, but John Carpenter doesn't. So what it does is it allows us to think at any moment for the first 45 minutes, or certainly I was, I was, I was trying to think Michael could pop out from the side or from the front at any time. And we'll not see him because there's so much space, but it also means that our character and we feel safe because we can see, you know, in good time, if anyone comes in from, from the side. But the other thing that aspect ratio does is you have like a limited depth of field, which then means you, you know, the background is out of focus and there's the, the shot, uh, with the bush that you were talking about, Matt, uh, sorry, Patrick, when you were describing, you know, you thought you'd seen the film, you remembered it. I think she's walking with Annie and we think we see Michael. Then we go back and we can probably make out that it, he isn't there. And then there's another shot where it looks like he might be there. And John Carpenter's playing with us the whole time and it's just mm. ratcheting up the tension. I thought it was just phenomenal. And, and it ends up that, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis is eventually constricted in the frame as she is in that closet by the end and it's all tight. And that's what I loved about it. The way Dean Cundy keeps those uh, shadows going too, it's exactly what you said. I think that was part of the plan. But instead of just having large spaces, they're actually filling those large spaces with, with shadow and, and dark. So you're never, you're never really sure when he's going to pop out. It's, it's amazing what a static shot can do to an audience. Like for me, I kept getting an ominous feeling. Every, every wide shot, every kind of street or house or garden. And we get kind of a motif throughout, you know, the same position of the, um, oh, forgive me because I've only watched it once and forget the characters' names, but uh, the neighbor across the road, the garden as well, like they're the same shots that we see over and over again. And because of that repetition for me, I'm like, we're coming back here for a reason. And like Gally said, Michael could come out at any time. He could be there lurking, stalking. And I think that is done really well, especially the, the um with that POV stuff getting you so uneasy to start with. And then understanding there's a killer on the loose when he gets in the car and he drives off. Where is he going to pop up? And when he does pop up, whether outside the school and then he's gone, I found it very unnerving. A lot of this is established within uh, the first two scenes as well. So after we have our cold open, you have, um, like Matt, you were saying about how much Dean Cundy uses total darkness. And there are points when the Dr. Loomis and the, and the nurse, uh, whose name, unfortunately, I can never remember, are driving. Just smoking nurse. Smoking nurse <laughs> from the red, the rabbit in red lounge. Um, when they're driving to, uh, Smith's Grove, 
uh, oftentimes you'll cut to a shot, which is clearly the uh, perspective of the of the driver. And there's literally nothing on the screen, full, full, full black, just the rolling thunder and the rain. And then when you eventually swing those car headlights around and you can just vaguely make out these horrible ghostly shapes just kind of shambling around in the rain, like that's terrifying. Yeah. And then uh, uh, like when you were talking about the big scene of um, of uh, Laurie walking through the town and then she meets up with Tommy and they start talking about what they're going to do for Halloween and then the uh, the scene keeps going and going and going. And at the end of it, it's only right at the end that Michael encroaches. And it's, we've got this huge, big wide shot of her walking down the street, singing to herself. Uh, I wish I had you all alone, just oh, the yeah. two of us, mm-hmm. I think. And then, and then that's the first time you see this giant shoulder take over a whole side of the screen. And that's the, oh, I think that's also the first time you have the Michael breathing. Honey, that's a haunted house. He said awful stuff happened there once. Lonnie Lamb probably won't get out of the sixth grade. I gotta go. I'll see you tonight. Bye. Bye. I wish I had you all alone. Just the two of us. I like that they used, uh, that John Carpenter used a little bit of time to set up Michael and Tommy too, the boy where uh, he's getting hassled at school and he falls on the pumpkin. And um, there's a connection between Michael and Tommy too, because that would have been a very easy scene to just cut and make it all about Laurie. But um, the, the, the fear uh, about the boogeyman and all these things, it's all tied together very nicely. And you talked about the motivation. And that was the other thing that I, I think is super, super effective and frightening, which is when, when Michael's in his old house and, uh, and Laurie's got to drop the keys off. That's all I need. I don't need what's going to end up happening in Halloween two, where we try and, uh, get some kind of bloodline established. He sees her. He sees Tommy and that's enough. Reminds him of him and his sister. Done. That is the person that is going to be the focus of my attention for the rest of the evening. You know, and, and you can, um, you can, you can add lots of, uh, academic theory onto, you know, the Virginial protagonist and what she represents, but you can do away with all of that when you're watching the film. Just be like, that's all I needed was that one shot of him peering out and seeing her drop the keys. It could have been anybody. It just so happened to be Laurie. And, uh, and yeah, what it makes up for a great, a great, battle to commence i was actually i was a little bit surprised that he didn't go for her first because she was the first person he saw i I thought you know like there'd be some lineage that way rather going for her friends first but um just from a context point of view in a wider picture in today's society he said galley to look at it through today's eyes i suppose with the death of sarah everard recently i think this film's quite prevalent in how women feel walking down the streets and it has uh, a context and a uh, a narrative about that really doesn't it the matt you said it as well we touched upon you know like um michael is a familiar person to her at the beginning and that's why she doesn't feel threatened and you know something as easy as walking down the street i feel like for some people this could be a particularly terrifying film because you shouldn't have to feel threatened that way. And this slow, slow build up that Carpenter really expertly does. It, it, it's not 
not glamorous. It's uh, glamorized. It's not, it's just matter of fact, cold and a harsh reality that is a horror film in this instance, but could be seen. And I did see it yesterday looking through it through modern eyes as a comment on the, your own safety and, and uh, how people are threatened just going home, something as simple as that. In the daytime, which is the, in the, you know, the key yeah. in the key for me, like that first 45 minutes, I, I did wonder this. I had it in my notes and, um, and I'm not suggesting we're going to answer for every, for an entire generation, but would this still be as affecting now for modern audiences, having had years and years and years of, of horror films subsequently that, that have, have kind of taken this as the, as the inspiration, you know, Halloween being the inspiration, um, for so many, but also taking on, and, and like I said, logically moving things on from where Psycho left because this is so slow, so deliberate. But also probably, um, you know, part of necessity, you know, it's a low budget film. So, you know, you don't have any dollies. Um, we're just going to have to go, uh, you know, camera on shoulder and follow and stalk. And, and, and it's so effective, but it I don't is. know. Will, 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 will somebody in, in a kind of the newer generation, um, who will love horror films, will they go back to Halloween and still be scared or will they be bored? I don't know. I, I like to think not. I think, um, I think this holds up. I've only watched it once, but I was, I was very hooked in it, to be honest. Um, I forgot to mention as well, like, you know, the Yorkshire Ripper was only a few years before this as well. And there were things going on at the time also, you know, um, but mm. I do think there's something in, uh, a relentless stalking and something you cannot get away from. I'd like to think it does hold up now for a modern audience, Gally. I worried about that. That was in my conclusion, actually, but about, you know, recommending it. But I, I think I'd be tempted to look at the David Gordon Green one first for younger audiences and then go back to the original once you know kind of where you are with it. It might be because those two are linked directly. I don't think Halloween 2 even comes into it. I think it's just Halloween straight to the 2018 David Gordon Green one. And in in that movie, we'll do more on it next time, but uh, Jamie Lee's character of Laurie kind of gradually turns into Loomis in in many ways, and she gets that feminist stance uh, as far as getting revenge on Michael. So that's very of the time, but still has that stalk and slash thing, still has the character. So I'd, I'd be tempted to recommend that 2018 one first for young for very young audiences and then go back to the original just to, as a, a as a way to see where it all came from because i would be concerned that they'd laugh actually i'd i'd, I'd like to think that they wouldn't but I'd, i i think that they might struggle i think the I, thing I, that i struggle with if anything to criticize it and i know we're going way ahead in our review here but some of the acting some of the line delivery um mm. i thought was a little uh not great um, to, to be completely honest, um, Devon, what's, um, her name who ends up in the white shirt with her ass hanging out in the washroom? I thought yeah. she wasn't great. There's some overlaps in, uh, in when they're walking and talking together and they leave the, the school. Um, which I guess in a way is kind of, uh, in one way is kind of great that it's sort of realistic that they sort of chatter away. But there are times when it genuinely sounds like somebody is queuing up their line of dialogue 
before another line of dialogue is finished, largely because they just couldn't work out the timing properly. Are you talking about this shit? I already have a place for that. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's. Um, I mean, I, I I like it all. I think there's um there's a maybe the clumsiness of it kind of endears you to them, maybe even a little more than if they were particularly professional. It endeared me to um Jamie Lee Curtis. Like I I mean, I liked her and her character and the, her demeanor. It was her. It was Annie. I found quite distracting her, some of her line reading. And Annie's cool out. though. She wants to watch the horror marathon. She likes, you know, <laughs> reefers. But she was on the phone. And she's like, "I got something on me. I'll ring you back." Oh, I spilled a tiny bit of butter on myself, so I'm going to take off all my clothes. That that came from um, Deborah. I think that was Deborah Hill um, doing a lot of the the dialogue there for the girls, rather than John. Yeah. And I think the bit where she spills butter on herself is actually quite. Quite cool because it, it, it's not a way of getting her to take her clothes off. I mean, it kind of is, but it, it it's is. also to, to get her into another, uh, situation. It, it's, and also there was a quote, uh, I think from Deborah who said that it wasn't about like gratuitous nudity there. It was making her vulnerable and, you know, mm-hmm. exploiting someone and, 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 you know, titillating an audience and making a character vulnerable are actually two completely different. Thanks. Does she not have other clothes in a wardrobe? Does she have to do the washing right <laughs> well, then and uh, there? Just leave the butter on. Who cares? It was like she's, a tiny bit. She's at, the, um, she's at the Wallace house. She's not at her own house. So, uh, yeah. I guess oh, okay, that, fine, part, fine, fine. Yeah, that's yeah, part yeah. of the vulnerability of, of the fact that... It was just the way she said it on the phone, though. I'll call yeah. you back. Like, yeah. Very, very <laughs> I, I strange to me. One thing that... Um, I don't want to get too into uh, criticisms. I'd... But I would like to sneak one in before I, this becomes very hagiographic for me because I do love this film very much. But there is a, um, when we talk about this one setting a lot of, um, the template for slasher films going forward, one thing that it does also set the template for is the fact that the second act in a slasher film is very, very difficult to pull off because you have to just have a bunch of not much stuff happening. Nothing of great consequence generally happens in the middle portion of a slasher film. So you have to be able to sustain the atmosphere while in this film, there is an awful lot of, people picking up large, heavy rotary telephones, Mm. saying things to each other, putting them back down, and then just shuffling back and forth between two houses. There's a lot of place setting, which, um, again, in this one, I think it works just because it's kind of, uh, maybe it's to do with the, the economy that they put it together and the fact that they've sustained such an atmosphere so much. Uh, and also Carpenter's music is doing a lot of heavy lifting in, in, yeah. in this kind mm. of stuff. I, I like mm. the proximity of it all, Dublin, like the geography. I do like that. The scariest thing for me is actually later when she's fleeing from Michael and she goes onto the porches of one of her neighbors and the light comes on and she's screaming for help. And that's the scariest thing. Those people just close the, close the blinds on her. Nobody, nobody would help you. It's like when a car alarm goes off at night and no one actually thinks a car's been stolen. It's just like, will you turn that alarm off? You know, it's, it's annoying. It's like nobody responds to these things anymore. That was one of the things that Carpenter said that he wanted to weave into it. There are a few, for all that we say that, uh, uh the film was maybe Erwin Yablin's idea. I, I think he and Deborah Hill infused a lot of, of, of thought into this. Um, uh, one thing is that, uh, John Carpenter credits his move to Bowling Green, Kentucky when he was a, a young boy uh, and that being in the Jim Crow era of the South. He said some of the inhumanity that he saw uh, in that town from ostensibly decent and good people, God-fearing people who were able to do horrible, horrible things and to tolerate horrible things being done. I think 
that moment with the porch light going off is just like nobody's coming to help you. Yeah, and, and also the idea of uh, Laurie being virginal, uh, like he's he's making an existentialist horror. So it, this there's this idea like it's perpetuated by Scream as well with the rules, you know, the uh, the Jamie Kennedy experiment and all that. Uh, this idea that if you're promiscuous, you die and you survive because you're virginal and, uh, the formation of what would become the first, that's the final girl, sorry. And, uh, th- this idea that bad things can happen to anyone at any point for no reason at all is the true horror of life. And it's the true horror of, of Halloween as well. And I think that's what, what, what John Carpenter tapped into with, uh, with his upbringing in the South there. Is Halloween responsible for the many, many tropes that we've, you know, that, that, that were called out in, in Scream and referenced so, so wonderfully? Or did it just recodify them? Because that, that was something that I rewatching it now as like, I can see all the academic theory that surrounds the final girl and Jamie Lee Curtis's character and what she represents and, and how that character has been rewritten and, and recategorized and placed in other situations. And we, you know, we talked about it in Alien, uh, with, with Sigourney as, uh, as Alan Ripley. Is that the case or is that just people kind of retrofitting something that fits a narrative to say this is the best film ever, uh, when it comes down to slashes? I think if you, if you look at the predecessors, you have, um, uh, the Texas, two kind of proto slashes that I can think of really of, of, of successful horror movies that preceded it is Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Black Christmas. Um, Black Christmas is really complicated in the way that it portrays its characters because the, the, the lead character, Olivia Hussey, uh, the, the so-called final girl is far more complicated and far more interesting. She's in a relationship with a guy. She's pregnant. It's an unwanted pregnancy. She tells him outright that she is going to abort that pregnancy. And this is a one year after Roe versus Wade, the, the, the kind of landmark court case in America that essentially to all intents and purposes legalized abortion. And the fact that that character is the one who we follow she's a uh, uh, um she's clearly the protagonist obviously the end of the film is somewhat ambiguous as to what happens to her after the credits start rolling but um certainly she is not an archetype of what would become the kind of final girl um and in texas chainsaw massacre it almost seems like it could be it's at random whoever survived like i it didn't feel like she was destined or fated to be the final girl just one thing on black christmas the research on that was really interesting it uses panaglide uh povs oh, okay, yeah. um, it's also a slasher film set on a night of a celebration uh and in many ways it's like an unofficial prequel to halloween because that there is a story this this was on the unmasked podcast so i'm kind of just recounting that but um, there's an idea or a theory that John Carpenter took the idea, the idea for Halloween directly from, from Bob Clark, the director, because John Carpenter said that he liked Black Christmas and he asked the director, Bob Clark, if he was going to make a sequel. And Clark said, if I did, I would have the killer escape from a mental institution and return to kill the girls on Halloween. So, uh, th- there's all this stuff where the idea came from Yablins. And the babysitters, we talked about it earlier and call it Halloween, set it on one night. But there's also this other, uh, line of, of question where maybe some of the, the influence for this came from the director of Black Christmas. 
as a as an even weirder pre-echo to that, I remember going to a, um, a screening of Black Christmas several Christmases ago at a, a little cinema in London. Um, not really a cinema; it's the back of a bar that has a screen in it. And, um, <laughs> the the there was a guy who was who was talking about Black Christmas, and he introduced it, and he said that um, Black Christmas also owes a heavy debt to a short film made at USC. By Dan O'Bannon, who was a classmate. Oh, no way. Oh, wow. The dark star. The idea of uh, the call coming from inside the house, that was apparently an invention of Dan O'Bannon in this no short way. film. That's, you know, that's the uh, a trope in the slasher film, isn't it? That's that's everywhere. Yeah. Uh, when a stranger calls. So much better before the mobile phone. Well, that's one thing that I that I thought when you were saying, would it be uh, palatable or readable to modern audiences? And I, I, I do wonder whether the world that this film is set in is so remote now. It's like... It would be like asking us uh, around the time when we would have watched this film. Let's uh, Patrick accepted. Uh, although, were you to have watched it in your kind of formative teen, middle teen years, the world that these kids would be uh, uh, being forced to kind of reckon with would be what, like, the same as us trying to watch something from the early nineteen fifties. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but then you're talking to me, who loves films from the early 1950s. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but um, I, I also think perhaps we're, uh, uh, and, and like you said, Matt, that you'd probably show somebody Halloween 2018, and then if they if they were hooked on it, they would probably need to make a few leaps to, yeah. to get into Halloween 78. I don't know whether that might be a stumbling block. Potentially, I, I I must admit, I don't know. It might just be that it's so well constructed. Context is key in this, I think. I mean. Y- you have to any allegory or any metaphor that is specific to the time is clearly going to get lost. I mean, one of the things that Matt said about watching the 2018 version is that they call out the 78 one for not being particularly heavy on the blood. Like, oh, he only, I think that one of the characters says, what, he only killed like eight people, like six people. That's not even a serial killer. Well, yeah, it's yeah. Like, there you go. Three people. So that, that wasn't lost on, uh, on, in the David Gordon Green version, but I think the execution and one of the key aspects, which we haven't yet talked about, is John Carpenter's music, which I think does transcend the the time and place because it's it's absolutely foreboding and just yeah. Immediately, as soon as you hear it, you 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 know I think Matt, you described it in, in our kind of pre notes. As well, just as important as John Williams's score for Jaws. It's the same for Michael Myers. Like, as soon as you hear that music, you know that something is lurking in the shadows. It's this idea that it's deceptively simple. Uh, we say, oh, can, you know, you put a, a, a keyboard in front of an idiot like me and I'll play Jaws or, or the theme from Halloween. And it, it's, everyone thinks they can play it, but if you listen to it, it's got this weird scratching in the background. It's got uh, horns on it. It's got strings and it, it just keeps building. And Carpenter talks about this idea of repetitive phrasing, but I compared it to Jaws because Jaws is not just da da da. That would not work at all. Like some of the most beautiful cues in that film are uh, like when, when the, the, they shoot the, the yellow barrels into the shark and they're chasing it and it's like an adventure score. And, and even the dirt dirt itself has, has layers to it. And Halloween is exactly the same that it originated from, uh, the bongos. His dad taught him how to play, uh, on the bongos. And he just moved it over to a, a keyboard or, or a piano. And 
um, I, the other research said that it was, it's done in five, four time, which is five beats per measure, whatever that means. I have no clue, but it's an odd timing and a weird rhythm. And it's the same as the mission impossible theme. Uh, and, and that's why it's kind of memorable because it, it, it feels like it has no beginning and no end. And it's just a peculiar kind of rhythm. Amazing with that kind of metronomic thing. There's there's a, a few pieces which are really rhythmic, but yeah, the main piano theme has that kind of that ticking sound, that really really fast ticking clock. Yeah, kind of in yeah. the background. And then there's there's another which has a kind of a, a, a rhythmic sort of. Oh, it's the ding 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 ding. It's like, yeah, yeah, which sounds like a sort of distant clanging bell. It sounds like it could have been from the fog as much as. But from also the the scariest one for me is bum. Bum, 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 that one. Yeah. And the way he kind of modulates that, it's not actually that the Halloween theme itself that is in the scariest parts of the, the film. You, you could argue that wondering where he is is scarier than seeing him. But for me, mm-hmm. the scariest scene was always when Laurie discovers the bodies, which again is a, a slasher trope. You can't just kill someone. You have to present the bodies in a, a pop-up uh, Jack in the box kind of a uh, way. And then she crosses the street to get back in. And Tommy is really slow opening that locked door for her. Yeah. And Michael mm-hmm. is just stalking across the road. And that's the then, 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 then that part. And that's scarier for me than anything else in the, in the film. Well, Matt, you mentioned about, uh, modern audiences maybe having a giggle. Uh, I think they may be directing that at a certain Donald Pleasance, but quite frankly, they are wrong. Because my God, does Donald Pleasance bring it for this one? And you, he's so, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm now being slightly uh, facetious, but he genuinely, I don't think the movie works without Loomis being there to not only expose a little bit of, ex, uh, of detail about Michael, but also to give us the idea that everything is, you know, it needs to be done right away. He's on a rampage. And even if he doesn't move that fast, the way that Loomis talks about him, the way that he chases him down and he's one step behind him makes us feel that, that impact. And, and there's a, there's going to be a finality and it needs to be done by the end of this evening. It's uh, the, the Frankenstein trope, isn't it? It's like he's created a monster and he has to try and stop it. He's like the Van Helsing to, to the, to Michael's Dracula. And, uh, I, I love that character because it's, it's actually quite deep. It's his failure as a doctor. He feels a personal responsibility for, for Michael. And, uh, I, I actually really like the Rob Zombie stuff because Malcolm McDowell plays Loomis in the Rob Zombie one. And that is ham and cheese in a completely different way. Um, it, with a Kubrickian edge, but, um, I, I love the Donald Pleasant stuff. I think it really, really grounds it and, and adds some credibility because he's a, he's a big name big name actor also has a fucking mad facial expression and uh <laughs> lonnie get your ass away from there <laughs> his reaction to terrifying a child is genuinely bizarre mm. and there's a great jump scare there where the, the sheriff puts his hand on his shoulder as well that's there's a really nicely timed john carpenter i think it was the girl that played annie said that john carpenter's directing technique was like a jack-in-the-box it plays this nice music this nice peaceful kind of childlike music and then there's a there's a jump and there's there's a few of them in there like when when Loomis gets startled in the Myers house where one of the storm drain they're not storm drains like the the the, the, the gutters the guttering fall, yeah the guttering falls into the window and, and startles him there's, there's a few cheap shots just, but... just as brandishing his piece around <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> 
Yeah, he's a, he's an armed Cassandra as he runs around and no one listens to him, but it's, so it's a nice way to establish he's got a gun though, right? Absolutely. And he puts six bullets in him and he's still, well, <laughs> he, even modern, not be killed. From the modern audience perspective, I think one of the other, I've had it on in the background for this, this whole thing as well. And if I was to giggle at something that may not have aged very well, Matt, is when, um, <laughs> Michael Myers falls off the balcony. The sound. <laughs> and he could, he's clearly, <laughs> it's yeah. clearly a ju- cut and a jump, you know, there's a man yeah. jumping there. It, it's weird. At the beginning of Halloween 2, they reshot that. There's a kind of a slightly tracking shot oh, really? where he get. there's a really good, well, much better stunt fall uh, as he gets shot. Right. And then just to say, like, on your excellent zombie podcast, um, which was what, a year? When was that? May? That was May. Uh, May. Yeah, May. Um, just, I don't remember the details exactly, but did we, did you ever speak about like the early zombie films having that slow zombie crawl, you know, and the, the impending doom on that? And I kind of attributed Michael and his movement to, to that uh, around the time as well. Early horror films around that time had the slow, uh, but it's no less scary. It's no less like impending and ominous and, and kind of, and I don't know sense of being trapped and then does michael get any faster throughout the films or we discussed it in the terminator we said ah, like, terminator as abso- well, yeah. absolutely like james cameron would have watched halloween and gone yeah. i'll have some oh, of that yeah, there's yeah, another yeah. tie there actually because uh, both films um terminator and halloween stole heavily from westworld the original where yeah. yes yeah. yul brynner is an indestructible robot killer who doesn't do any running as far as I can remember. And it's just a very, it's an unstoppable force. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a great bit of dialogue, isn't there? And, um, uh, the first time Laurie actually makes eye contact with Michael when she's in the English class and she's looking out of the window and she looks through the blinds and you just see this. It's, I think it's our, as an audience, I think it's our first shot of Michael's face really. And even yeah, then it's, it's, it's apart from distance, as a child. Yeah. It's, it's quite in the distance. So you can't really tell what, what is going on. You just realize that he's got this really disgusting, weird, unusual, very off-putting lumpy white head while he's sitting <laughs> behind the, the car. And the you don't even know it's a mask at that point, do you? You just think, what, yeah. what's going on here? And there's, uh, um, the, uh, the, the teacher is saying, uh, that fate caught up with several lives here. No matter what course of actions Collins took, he was destined to his own fate, his own day of reckoning. Mm. It's like, that's one of those little moments where it's like, yeah, people actually sat and thought about this script. Yeah, why do I think that's Deborah Hill too? I, I'm sure that's her, you know. Well, um, I've just, I've just going for uh, one more possible uh, giggle moment. Uh, <laughs> and it shouldn't be, because it should be, it should be scary, but it's when he's in the car and he looks, he's looking at them as he drives past. I don't know why there is just something mummifying about him looking at <laughs> I think it's funny because there's a line about, hey, isn't that Devon Graham or somebody? Yeah, 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 and he's, like, and he's like, well, poor Devon yeah, Graham. Cute. Does he have a white face like that? Is that what he looks like? Clearly <laughs> <laughs> not that kid. Also, yeah. does he drive around in a car which is like the Department of yeah, Health or... Studies? <laughs> he's in his parents' uh, estate car. For, from a design point of view, though, uh, and again, modern audience, it's quite an everlasting design uh the, the the overalls the white face people still dress up as him he's quite a popular character from what i can see in oh massive patrick i mean i think that's taken away some of the power as well from the character and it, i think it happens to it happens to all the major hitters uh in horror i think but but i think michael myers seemingly now has taken over 
certainly on Twitter. I mean, the amount of videos I've seen of, um, oh, my favorite, yeah. my child's favorite character is Michael Myers. So I've yeah, invited him that? to my birthday party. <laughs> I was like, where are we with this? This is like, we've gone too far here because surely they've never, if you've let your child watch Halloween and they've yeah. got to that point, then you are bad parents, I would that, say. That video yeah. of that little girl who runs to him, like, yeah, yeah. she can hear the music, is getting excited, running into the arms of a serial killer. <laughs> even, even, um, I mean, what are we, day three of October? If I go onto Twitter now and check my timeline, there will be Dancing Michaels. And there's a part of me that thinks, yes, it's fun, but there is a new movie coming out. And I would be pissed if I was the director of that new movie and I've got Dancing salt. Michaels. Yeah, because, like, how do you then make that character what he was i don't think you can which then makes me think well why do you go out to watch these films then because you can't be scared unless if I mean, you really can't unless you you know don't what you don't have any of those gifts or memes sent to you and, and just on the ending uh just to go on the the ominous tone of it and dean kendu's photography uh, i'm a big fan of the montage of all the locations that i spoke about earlier and it's again re-establishing them once michael has disappeared and just showing us where he could be and where it could pop up at any moment. I think that's a glorious finale uh, for me. One of the things that people forget in the first film is that Michael's not exactly the most efficient of killers. Um, yeah. As in, when he is, you know, imparting his duties, he, one of the things that, that the, kill, the kills become way more elaborate, and we'll talk about it in part two when we dissect some of the sequels, but just to refer directly to Halloween 2, they seem to have responded to where the this subgenre slasher films had kind of moved towards, and audiences wanted more elaborate kills with, uh, you know, effects laden kills. And the thing that I find most affecting about this is that it's left to my own imagination. The threat of violence is way more impactful to me than any kind of explicit depiction, and that's what I think works in this film is everything's slow. And brutal, like even the strangulations, like Annie in the car, that goes on for ages. So it goes, it's like a joke. It's like they've joked the joke and then we're back round again. So that then becomes really quite horrific. I remember Hitchcock saying something about how if you choke someone, it takes an incredible amount of strength to do it. And you see it in things like Inglorious Bastards and, and things like that. This is a, a scene that's actually quite realistic in the sense that it would take a long time to kind of do that and it's a really drawn out horrible scene it's yeah it's not i mean a, a stab is a quick motion a gunshot is dispassionate but to actually do that is 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 almost unthinkable to to know that at no point during this really extended period of time it's you know that whoever is perpetrating that um has mm. has absolutely zero remorse because mm. It's, it's they have so all these chances to stop doing what they're doing and they don't. It's terrifying. It's terrifying. And, um, uh, when you're talking about the, the drawing out of tension and I think why perhaps I'm leaning towards the fact that this film has some kind of, uh, uh, weird intangible magic to the way it's put together or, or just so many things came together in just the right way that when you compare it to the direct sequel and there's the, the death of the security guard. Mm. which is an incredibly drawn out sequence and has all of the tricks thrown at it and is not good. It's terrible. Yeah. Um, you have, uh, the, there's the rustling in the bins and then he opens the, uh, the, the dumpster and dumpster cat. Uh, there's, there's blood, but there's a cat. And then he goes inside the building <laughs> and he finds two, not one, but two broken, 
um, uh, uh, locks and he has to open this door and then some boxes fall on him. And then in the end, <laughs> it's just bang, stabbed, cut. And yeah, you're right. Just, it takes all that time and it doesn't work. And he's, I, we don't know who this guy is. He's the, the useless security guard. He's uh, stereotypically, uh, cast as well to be an, an, an overweight guy with a mustache who's reading comics instead of paying attention to the monitors. And you just think you've, you've expended all this time and energy on a thing which we had absolutely no attachment to. And thus I feel nothing for it. Whereas, you know, just watching, like you say, watching, uh, Annie walk to and from the laundry room mm-hmm. and knowing, like, is this the moment? No, is this the moment? Is this and all of those di- dialogue scenes that weren't particularly good, as I think Patrick's right, but the, just spending time with them was enough. Yeah, yeah. But I guess, it, like I say, go back to that recodifying the tropes of horror films. I don't know if Comdra and Deborah Hill were deliberately trying to say that this is how it's to be done. If you have sex, if you're promiscuous, if you smoke weed, then you are automatically going to die. Yeah, he's talked about that. He's, he said that there, were, there was no moral kind of implications to what he was doing. And in fact, it was this idea that um, uh, she is repressed and, and Michael is repressed. And that's kind of a tie between them. But also that she, not that she's virginal or a prude or... or a, prissy or anything like that she's just a careful person and so she's attuned to what's going on much more than the others um so it's been it's been taken by idiots and and for a lot of these sequels (laughs) and i don't want to say his name but uh it rhymes with schmorn schmash munningham and uh, (laughs) he's just taken the uh, you know, the girls undressing in the dark and getting stalked and killed. And he's forgotten to do all of the artful work that John Carpenter and Deborah Hill did to set these things up. And, and a lot of the subsequent slashes that I'm really enjoying, actually, I'm putting together another slasher bingo thing that will eventually be done. But, uh, it, it, they're really fun, but they're not as artful as this one. And it's, and it's, it's, really nice to see like where a lot of these things came from you know those types of films do not scare me in the slightest i watch them for the inventive elaborate kind of kills because that's in a way almost a weird dark fun that i can have because it's so it's so fake that it's just unreal to me whereas this feels so kind of authentic and primal like it's survival like i'm being chased around by something that i cannot stop that has no explanation, that has no motivation. And that is just so much scarier than, oh, um, he drowned in a pool, uh, lake a few years ago. He's just out to kill anyone who's about. Can we do the killings in the second one? Because the, the, there's a particularly gruesome one where a nurse is drowned in a therapy pool where it gets turned up to scalding. And uh, well, if you're the manager, you would scold her too. She's late for work all the time. <laughs> hey. Uh, so that's quite nasty. But my favorite moment in that, which is kind of a sick laugh, is where the the nurse, another nurse, the blonde nurse, gets killed with a scalpel and she gets kind of picked up. And there's this great moment, the best moment in the film, aside from the Donald Pleasant's ham, where her two shoes just fall off. She gets lifted off her feet and her two shoes just fall down. And it's kind of this dark thing that kind of, I guess, echoed what a lot of those copycat slashes were doing. 
and it, it turned into another one of them in a way. I, I, I thought the one thing in the second film that maybe had some real atmosphere to it was uh, Lance Guest finding the the head nurse having been bled out. Now, what do you think of that? Because because I picture how Michael would have done that, and I don't think he would have. That that's not a, a way he would have killed someone. No, I, I agree. It's completely out because it's it's very uh, uh, elaborate. And he has to put a, um, yeah. uh, is it cannula? Is that what it's called? He has to have some medical training, which he doesn't have. It's, um, but it's, it's, uh, it's definitely got that, um, uh, uh, kind of creepy Italian seventies influence just in that sequence. The rest of the film has just so much corridor walking mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. A, a terrible, sp- when you said about the Patrick, about the two houses being, um, you know the ge- the geography is of the of the town is set so well considering we reduce it basically to two houses that are diagonally opposite each other we we walk our way through those two houses so often that we kind of understand it whereas the hospital is never laid out at some point uh Laurie is outside crawling out of Lance Guest's car and Michael is approaching her from behind probably just so he can be lit by the taillights and then slowly follows her into the, the the hospital that's before he smashes his way straight through the glass door um and i just think like there's never been an establishment of who anyone is or where anyone is some of these nurses the blonde nurse just pops up she's just there um we don't i don't know her name she's blonde nurse um uh, it, it's it's quite telling when you watch the two of them side by side when you just see uh um something which was so clearly considered and was considered not in a way that it was trying to jump on trends. I don't think, I think they, they created something um, from scratch. And I think Halloween two was such a, um, a reaction to things that were going on around and a reaction to other uh, copycats and a reaction against expectations, uh, a reaction against potentially just not really wanting to, to be there, which is why possibly they made it so angry. Well, there was a weird story, wasn't there, that Yablins was going to do the fog and get Carpenter to direct Halloween 2, and then Embassy stole Carpenter for the fog, so Yablins sued them. And then Carpenter had to commit to to Halloween 2 in order to do the fog with embassy so he was forced into it and he said he drank a a six pack of Budweiser that's why I've got my Budweiser today in honor of John and he drank a six pack of Budweiser stayed up till 2 a.m or whatever or started writing at 2 a.m and did the whole thing for 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 Halloween 2 with Deborah and yeah they they were forced into it they didn't want to do it there was not no story left to tell I think he said there's something to be said and I think that if you wanted to tell that story there's a because the first film was so uh, uh, revolutionary, or at least it created something, kind of a new form, sort of. Like, imagine if they'd have taken this idea of what happens after the credits roll in like an incredibly tense film where, you know, you've, you've been taken on your emotional journey and then it cuts and it's like, and now what happens? It's like, imagine a, a, an emotionally exhausted, wounded uh, uh, traumatized victim of a, of, a, of a film that's already happened to them and then they have to do it again it's kind of like a I don't know like an old pro wrestling trope where you have like you know the monster villain and you have the 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 you know the go get him hero who has to have all these obstacles put in their place like what more obstacle could there be than like they've already gone through the t- the absolute ringer and now you have to do it again immediately well Devlin 
I point, I point to aliens. If you want to watch that movie. Well, yeah, that's, 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 that's a good point. I guess, uh, that was the thing. So it can, it can be an interesting story and it can be told, especially like I say, the same night, which, you know, just a continuation. It hits yeah. Yeah. I'll give you that. It was 54 again. years later. So yeah, there was a little bit, of, a little bit of a gap. I get alien three, I guess it's like alien three is, is to, is to, uh, Ripley like the next day. Cause she was in hypersleep. Should we do our final thoughts on, on Halloween? Um, so I will start with you, Patrick, as the, oh. as the newbie. Um, so final thoughts on Halloween and do you, you know, this one is quite difficult. Do you recommend it to our listeners? Those that have never seen it and those that, uh, that may have seen it, but not for some time. I, I really liked it. Um, I got in late from work last night and, you know, lights off, right? Horror. I want to watch a horror and it did scare me. Uh, it did unnerve me. It did a really good job. And I, if that's a commentary on a modern, audience that's coming into the film that's never seen it before then great for a younger modern audience I, I don't know we touched upon things that might be a bit goofy i i do my criticism is in some of the acting and uh, line delivery that didn't wasn't strong uh kind of took me out of it the the jump at the end might stir up a few giggles but um to look at this film is amazing um there's two shots that really I'm feeling the chills now, actually. Uh, and that is a mark of a, of really good filmmaking. Um, when Michael kills the dog, uh, and we concentrate on the lower half and we see the legs of the dog, uh, full limp really got to me. And then at the end in what I wrote down as the ghost house, like at the fun fair, when, um, Jamie Lee Curtis is running around, she finds a friend's dead. She has a moment when she's catching her breath and Michael appears out the shadows. Oh, that really sent a chill through me. I thought that was masterful and really great. And then we talked about the POV stuff. We then get Jamie Lee Curtis's POV falling down the stairs. So we, we haven't talked favorite scenes, but I think that was mine because I was really wowed by it and thought it was incredible not to take away from all of the slow burning stuff because I'm all for that. I think it was done really well. Um, I love the, the sense of place, the geography and the way the houses and everything was lit. And I like Jamie Lee Curtis. I, th- I found her very endearing and, and a suitable, um, I'd say, I suppose she's not really the protagonist here, actually. It was kind of a shared thing. But anyway, main character, I'll call her, um, that really worked. I, I liked how she protected the children and how she, you know, fought Michael. I thought it was really done really well. And contextually, I think this is, I do think it's kind of an everlasting thing. You know, at the time we'd relate this to the Yorkshire Ripper and now, uh, with, with what's in the news and Sarah Everard and the police and not feeling safe going home, it's, you know, it's kind of timeless at the moment and, and really prevalent in today's uh, society. And I, I find that galley certainly the, uh, a very terrifying notion for people. And this film shows that. We didn't really touch upon the domestic violence aspect of it either. You know, um, a woman stuck in the cupboard, scared uh, of someone who's, who's coming for her and smashing down the doors and going for her. Um, I, 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 I thought it was brilliant. Um, I'd like to watch it next Halloween and make a thing of it now because at Christmas, I make sure I watch Christmas films at Halloween. I should make sure I watch Halloween films. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I did think it was very good. Thank you. Um, Matt, uh, uh, well, we, we know your, your sandwiches are uh, glowing. 
Yeah. yeah. My favorite two things in terms of shots, I think, are the same as yours. When Dean Cundy turns up that dimmer and you can just see Michael's face start to appear. That's that one as well as the opening shot, which was the, the touch of evil, long, deceptive again, because it's not an uncut take. There are three hidden cuts in there, but you can, you can dip into our uh, playlist to find out where, where they are. John Carpenter's confessed to, to splicing a few different takes together. There is one where uh, they pick up the mask and the the optical of the of the eyes kind of goes on there. Like mm. They hide one in there, um, but cool. yeah, they're my favorite too. Um, I, I think a film it, it's a film that sounded like it was so much fun to make as well. I talked about it on the From Dust Till Dawn part about films that are fun to make and fun to watch and how rare they are. And uh, Jamie Lee paints a picture of it like falling asleep in the afternoons on the grips blankets. And it's a very young cast and crew and they're having fun making a film that's, that's really stood the test of time. Um, uh, I like the relatability of the small town. I'm from a, a small village and it's really not that different. There was a, there was a house, like a derelict house that we used to go in and look around and it brought back memories of that. Um, it, it's a film that's really inspiring to young filmmakers that I really appreciate about it. Um, Clive Barker said it was the only time this ever happened to him apart from The Exorcist when he was queuing up to see it people in the line were telling him how scary the film was and and warning him about it Um, and that kind of stuck with him I like that story Um, it's a huge colossal recommend from me Um, I think although the execution is is flawed in places and maybe hasn't aged um, perfectly uh, it's the, the film has stuck with me over the years and, it, and it, it always felt old to me. So it never really ages in, in my mind. It's um, the images really stuck with me. The hedgerows, the houses, you've talked about the proximity of how close the, the, the houses are to, to each other and the geography of it still really works. I think it taps into primal universal fears and, um, it holds back on a lot of things. Like we said, there's not too much blood and guts in this one. That, and that allows the viewer to, to participate and, and paint their own canvas in terms of what's scary. And we didn't talk too much about the mask. We should talk about it next time because some of the masks are dreadful in this series. They get them so <laughs> wrong. This one is great because they, I think John Carpenter said, um, people were saying, uh, oh no, it was Rob Zombie who said, uh, people were saying, did you use a different mask for that shot? Because he looks, more empathetic in that shot and he looks scarier in this one and the mask is the same uh, and it's just the lighting that changes and the context that changes so it, it's a really cool idea uh, and it's done terrifically in the original one it, it's the the slasher movie trope codifier um, it's part of Americana um, you know it, it's in, in terms of being like a, the must watch horror classic it's definitely up there Um the caveat would be, you know, it's lost a little bit of verve and, and, you know, the, it, it does feel like 1978. Um, and I can picture some kids chuckling at it. So we talked about the David Gordon Green one. Maybe go back there, go back after watching the David Gordon Green 2018 one. But if you, if you like cinema and you understand that certain films are, are important, uh, no matter how old they may be, uh, then 
then just go straight for the the original. I think you'll enjoy it. I wanted to say like earlier about they they showed me Citizen Kane at A level, and I couldn't comprehend how that film could be important. Of course, it was the first time so many things were were done. And I, I thought the best way would be to, to show kids Tarantino films and then go back to Scorsese and then go back to the French New Wave and work backwards so kids can, can chart backwards as opposed to forwards. They, they showed us Birth of a Nation when we first started and half the kids dropped out because they can't relate to, to that. We should work backwards from the contemporary stuff and, and learn about film that way. So, uh, yeah, I would definitely recommend it. Um, I think uh, if you've never dipped your toe into the world of, of Michael Myers, I'd go for, for the original or the David Gordon Greens, closely followed by the original, just to, to see where it all came from. Uh, so, yeah, big recommend. Interesting recommend-. point, Matthew. Uh, thank you, Patrick. I'll, I'll pass yeah. over to uh, Devlin next. Um, I would I would have to echo exactly what you said. Definitely a very good point about... Um, uh, working backwards in, in, in film history. I think it's a great idea. And I, I think, yeah, tracing a lineage backwards, not forwards. Um, what's interesting about this one is, um, that because it was, you know, the progenitor of, uh, of a subgenre, which became very tiresome and became something that, um, certainly we didn't dip too far into critics corner this time, but, uh, Siskel and Ebert both really enjoyed this film. Ebert especially is uh, hugely evangelical about it. Uh, he, he says that it's an incredible, uh, uh, piece of achievement. And, and weirdly, this wasn't one of his retrospective reviews where he'd been called out for getting something wrong. He was straight out of the bat. He loved this film. Um, uh, but both he and Siskel did a, um, an episode, uh, uh, later, which basically picked apart the slasher boom. And, uh, Gene Siskel said that Sean S. Cunningham was, uh, he's calling like the most, despicable slimy creature to ever infect the film business or something and said that what they did was uh they they took something that was quite powerful and they cheapened it and they made it cheap titillation which could be genuinely considered quite dangerous now um i don't believe that there's inherent danger in it i don't think I think after, you know, decades of video nasty scaremongering about, you know, um, copycats and whatnot, I don't believe that's ever really been the case. I don't think I might be wrong. Um, but I will say that this film stands apart from almost everything that came after in that it just feels like it has a different motive, a different purpose and a different effect. Uh, we talked about how watching some of the sort of sillier, cheaper, later slasher films, that what you get from it is, you know, uh, one-upsmanship on gore effects. I want to see something silly. I, w- I, I want to laugh at terrible performances. I want to laugh at the awful dialogue that you put in people's mouths in order to drag your film out to 87 minutes so you can get it on shelves. Uh, whereas this film always just had a completely different, um, motivation. It just seemed like, um, it came from a place of, of, of empathy, which leads to terror, not silliness, which leads to revulsion. You're not repulsed by this film. You're drawn into it. It drags you along. It's, it's, uh, it makes you want to lean in closer all the time. All these long takes, all that drifting camera movement, uh, all that darkness on screen, all the incredible just ink blacks. And you have to, you, you're trained to, to, to just look around the whole time and just wait for the next thing that's going to happen. It's not that you're second guessing it. 
It's that you understand that you're in the hands of somebody who is literally just playing your nerve endings like he's playing his synthesizer. It's a, it's a guy who knows exactly what he's doing. And, um, I mean, Carpenter was a guy who several times hit these kind of heights. And what's fascinating is that he hit these kind of heights in completely different ways in completely different films later in his career. He never really did this again. And I find that fascinating considering how good he is at it first time out. Um, but yeah, so I uh, always, always recommend watching Halloween. Um, it, it feels like it has, uh, it has a kind of a, a strange power that you don't get from a lot of other films. There are certain films that just have something. I remember thinking when we were talking about like films from, you know, a, a comparable era that perhaps, you know, maybe we would have watched something like Matt, you were saying Citizen Kane is difficult to, to grasp until you know. But if you think watching something like, um, like Night of the Hunter, which would be, for kids today, that would be like the same for us. That would be trying to watch a film as a teenager that is 40 plus years old. Um, that film has this weird kind of totally hypnotic energy and power to it. And it's so primal and it's so stripped back that it doesn't matter when it's from. It has that kind of, it has that, um, it, it works on you. And this film, no matter how many times I watch it, it works on me every time. Like, mm. Never get sick of it. Never did. Playing nerve endings like a synthesizer. That's why you get paid the big bucks, Devin. That's, <laughs> yeah. that, that's, that's a great one. Well, much like George Costanza when he finally gets a laugh, I'm going to leave on that then. <laughs> Hand over to Gally. What do you oh, think? no, thank you very much. Um, yeah, this, this one's, this one's an easy one for me. It's a, it's a strong recommendation. Um, I think for all of our exploration of whether or not we can second guess modern audiences. Um, I think the work will stand up. And the, the key word that all three of you have used, and I'm going to use it as well, is, is primal. The film's execution, just, I think absolutely anybody will, will relate to the primal nature of what John Carpenter and Deborah Hill are trying to achieve, which is survival and being hunted. You know, that's exactly what is happening. You know, you could, we haven't even talked about it, but there's no diversity in the cast. There's no, um, you know, all the kind of the modern, uh, studio tick boxing exercises that, that will go on, uh, and will probably no doubt be in Halloween kills. This film doesn't have any of that because it's not important. Uh, and it's not important that, you know, it is important that those things are addressed, but it's not important to the execution and to the effect of this movie. I think it would appeal to anybody or it should appeal. I think the only thing that I would worry about is maybe those we are now conditioned, I think, to have kind of if you if you're a big fan of like the conjuring or something like that, it's normally like every ten minutes, whereas this film stretches that a little bit a little bit longer. So it's not every ten minutes that you're gonna get a get a boo. But um but I think it's it's super affecting. And uh it scares me. It, it scared me rewatching it. I watched it on my own. Because uh, Danielle wouldn't watch it with me, and uh, and yeah, it still works. And the one thing that we didn't really touch upon, but we will because we will definitely do a John Carpenter film again, is the man himself and his kind of legacy. But I think we'll save that for another John Carpenter film because I think in a, in a strange way, it's John Carpenter's Halloween, but it's no longer John Carpenter's. Like this film and this series has kind of transcended the man himself and uh, a bit like Star Wars, um, you know, 
blessed poor George. It's no longer his and it's no longer John Carpenter's series either. But we will get into that when it, when it moves very much into new terrain in part two. So, um, so guys, where can, and I know because it just happened yesterday, where can our listeners find Halloween and subsequently do some research before we get into part two <laughs> in England. I'll do research next time. Don't worry. <laughs> in England, you are spoilt for choice. Netflix, now cinema, sky go stars and the Richard Branson one. I, I don't know what it's called. America has AMC hoopla, red box, shudder. Shudder is pay as well, isn't it? It's under stream here, but you have to, you have to subscribe to Shudder. Shudder is a subscription, as is, uh, Stars Play is the, uh, is the UK Amazon Prime channel service where you can currently watch one, two, four, and five. But yes, that is a subscription. I thought Stars was Disney. Uh, so it starts with a Z. There's too many and they all start. <laughs> this is too uh, many. Stars play is a, is an add on you can have. There is currently a trial. You can get it for 99p a month. So oh, if dear. you just want to get it for the month of October, it's worth it. Uh, sorry, Virgin. Halloween two is on Netflix. Stars with a Z and the Richard Branson one and, uh, <laughs> the Richard Branson one. And in the USA, Halloween two is everywhere, but, um, to, to rent and buy, but not currently streaming. And Korea is barren. You can't get anything in Korea, so just steal it or buy it. Yeah, I'm virgin. <laughs> it, it's, it's rent or buy. That's the, the thing about it. Oh, fair enough then. Well, listen, either way, you can definitely get a hold of it. This is not Lawnmower Man 2 territory here, so <laughs> you can definitely, definitely get a hold of Halloween. Devlin, do you have super DVDs or Blu-rays? I do. For this? Yeah, I have a. Um, I actually just have a quite basic DVD box set, but uh, that's one, two, three, four, five, and then Resurrection, <laughs> and you have to go and buy six separately because it was released by a different studio. It's Brilliant. absolute madness. Once we get into the next episode, if you're at all that way inclined, you can join us uh, uh, metaphorically and in clothing. <laughs> I don't know where I'm going with this. We sell t-shirts now and they're online and you can buy them. The The link to the shop is in the show notes. We have a T-mail store. We make t-shirts. They're Rewind branded. And also Matt has an incredible range of very funny stickers and also some really cool Star Wars t-shirts. So mm-hmm. go buy our stuff if you like. I'm not going to tell you what to do, but it would be nice. <laughs> but I am, which is, I'm going to say, if you enjoy the episode and you enjoy what we do, then please like, subscribe and share, spread the gospel, as we say. Um, and yeah, that way we can bring more people to the show and then we can get more and more listener requests that we eventually do 12 months after they've been submitted. It's how we roll. So yeah, if you do enjoy the show, please support it. Um, we will say our goodbyes then, team. It's Halloween. Everyone's entitled to one good scare. It's Gally in Glasgow, signing out. Hey, Jerk. Speed kills. It's Devlin in London. Then I rip my own clothes off, then rip Lindsay's clothes off. Yeah, I think I got this. It's Patrick in Cardiff. He's gone. He's gone from here. The evil is gone. It's Matt in South Korea. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on the Rewind Movie Podcast. You're the devil in the sky. Oh, yes, you are the devil in the sky. I thought that I was in heaven, but I was sure surprised. Heaven help me, I didn't see the devil in your eyes. You look like an angel. You look like an angel.
like an angel. Talk like an angel, but I got wild. You're the devil in disguise. Oh, yes, you are. 